From Troy Public Radio, this is Alabama Aloud. I'm Don Noble. Alabama Aloud is the only podcast where you can hear the works of Alabama's authors read in their entirety. And this is our very first episode. Today, I'll be reading three short stories from Alabama authors. Love by Michelle Richmond, Alaska by Tom Franklin, and The Other Shoe by Jennifer Horn. Michelle Richmond always knew she wanted to be a writer. Growing up in Demopolis, Alabama, she wrote scripts for her parents and her two sisters to perform. After graduating from the University of Alabama, Richmond worked in advertising and even at a tanning salon. Her first novel, Dream of the Blue Room, was published in 2002 by McAdam Cage. Her latest book, The Wonder Test, came out in 2021. Richmond is a recipient of the Truman Capote Prize for Alabama's Distinguished Writer of the Short Story and also the Hall Waters Prize for significant contributions to Southern literature. For our very first reading on Alabama Aloud, we've chosen Love, a short story which comes from Richmond's collection of short stories, Hum. He doesn't want to say that his wife has changed, but she has. Something essential in her has been altered. When he met her, she was soft and joyful, and she wore her relative poverty like a badge of honor. She shopped at thrift stores and ate ice cream, stayed up late working. God, she was ambitious. There was so much she wanted from life, so much she demanded of herself. Now her desires, her demands have shifted outward. She runs her household like a corporation. She wants her children to be smarter, more competitive. So she packs their afternoons and weekends with language classes and music lessons and organized sports. She wants her husband to be more attentive. So she fills their calendar with date nights and weekend getaways, outings with other couples to restaurants with extensive wine lists. When was the last time they bought sandwiches at a deli and ate them on the beach. She wants a different kitchen. She spends hundreds of hours choosing fixtures, paint, marble countertops. Those wasted hours, he thinks, those wasted conversations. Her body is a rock. She's taken up running and resistance training, Pilates on Tuesdays, CrossFit on Thursdays. She's in the best shape of her life. Men no longer look at me, she complains. You get older and women still look. It's not about age, he tells her. Then what is it about? You're beautiful, he says, trying to change the subject. In fact, she's only 40. He looks at women her age and older all the time. How to tell her that her body, so muscled, so disciplined, so hard and angular, is like a stop sign? When he holds her, his hands press into bone and muscle. He used to love the pillowy feel of her hips, the slight cushion of her belly. He's heard her boasting to friends that she's down four sizes from their wedding. She's so lean that her body looks stingy. When they go out to dinner, she invariably demands some variation to the dish. She orders fish, but wants it grilled with no butter. 
She refuses the bread, the dessert. She stares angrily at his potatoes. It's this town, he says to her. We should move. What's wrong with the town? What's wrong with the town is what is wrong with her. She used to love to drive to the beach on the edge of the city, with its graffiti-spattered seawall and sand dunes covered with ice plant. Now, when she says beach, she means Hawaii. She used to love easy weekends, reading the paper and going to the movies. Now they spend winter Fridays driving to their rented cabin in Tahoe, wrestling with snow chains. The children, pale from exhaustion, beg to quit the ski team, but she has already dropped a few thousand on equipment. It's crazy that we don't own a place up there, she says. Crazy. He remembers their first vacation. They took a driving trip in his old Nissan Stanza through Texas and Alabama down to the Florida Panhandle. They slept in shabby motels and ate at Denny's. They made love everywhere they went. She was beautiful and a little sloppy. She bought a sundress from the Daughters of the American Revolution charity shop in Galveston and wore it for a week with a pair of old cowboy boots she'd had since high school. She gained a few pounds from all the milkshakes and hash browns and didn't care. She loved to kiss him, couldn't get enough of him. She was kind to everyone. She left big tips she couldn't afford. She got excited about roadside attractions. His best friend described her as sweet. God, she was sweet. When he hears her berating the housekeeper, his heart breaks. He can't say, I don't recognize you. Instead, he says, If you expect it from yourself, one-tenth of what you expect from others. This ends badly. There are tears and recriminations. She takes a weekend getaway, saying she needs time to herself. She actually uses the phrase retail therapy. He feels sick. What has happened to her, to them? If he had been less successful, if she had been required to work, if they had not chained themselves to this monstrous house in this ridiculous town, would she still be the woman he once knew? When she returns, he apologizes, even though he doesn't believe he has done anything to apologize for. Still, he wants to make things right. He wants her back, the woman he fell in love with, the woman who fell in love with him. This town is toxic, he says. Let's go somewhere else. We can downsize. We can all spend more time together. We can rent a cottage on the Gulf Coast. The kids can play in the surf and hunt sand crabs. You can work again if you want. For a moment, she softens. He feels a glimmer of hope. He's waiting for the sign that she still loves him, that she still loves their children, that she is capable of love at all. The story Love was first published in the collection Hum and is used here by permission of the author. Tom Franklin of Dickinson, Alabama, is the award-winning author of three novels, most notably Hell at the Breach, set in Clark County, and the co-author with his wife Beth Ann Fennelly of The Tilted World. Franklin is a member of the Alabama Writers Hall of Fame. His first volume of fiction, Poachers, contained the story Alaska. Our aim was this, 
Alaska. To abandon Mobile at dawn without telling anybody, not even our girlfriends or our boss at the plant. Bruce knew a bail jumper who got a deckhand job on a crab boat off the Alaskan coast where she made $500 a day. Bruce was divorced for the third time, and I'd never been married. So we planned to sell our cars and Bruce's house trailer and buy an olive drab Ford four-wheel drive pickup with a camper, fill it full of those sharp green pine cones hard as hand grenades. Bruce heard you could sell those suckers for five bucks a piece in New England. They're crazy up there, he said. Driving through Georgia and Tennessee, we'd look for tent revivals where they had faith healing. If we found a good one, we'd stop and visit a service. Bruce would fake heart disease, and I'd be an alcoholic. To make it convincing, he said, I'd have to belch and stumble and splash on rum like aftershave. He would grimace, moan, and clutch his left arm until we had the whole congregation praying for us. When the ushers passed the KFC buckets for donations, we'd shrug and say we were flat broke, just poor travelers, homeless. Bruce had stolen his second ex-wife's Polaroid camera, which we'd keep handy for making pictures. Hawks on fence posts, grizzly bears, church marquees that said, The Lord is coming soon. Then right under that, bingo, 8 o'clock every Tuesday. We'd have a stack of books on tape from the public library, too. John Grisham, Stephen King, and even self-help. In the badlands of South Dakota, when we pulled off the road to sleep in the back of the truck with our feet sticking out, we'd play and improve your vocabulary tape, learn words like eclectic and satyr. At night, we'd stop in dives, me in my dark glasses and Bruce in his eel-skin cowboy boots. There'd be smoky harems of women interested in such eclectic guys, and they'd insist on buying us boilermakers. When I picked up a babe, I'd take the truck and leave Bruce arm-wrestling a drunk welder at the bar. Or if he got lucky and split with a startling honey, I'd amble to the jukebox and punch up John Prine and lure my dream girl away from the line-dancing bikers and cowboys. In the middle of the fight, I'd crawl bleeding out the back and sleep on a rock next to a cow skull and wait until the olive drab truck topped the hill in the morning. We'd make pictures of the girls, too. Bruce would let on to some of the drunker ladies that we were advanced photographers for the swimsuit issue, our names Abe Z and Horatio. At the other end of the bar, I'd be telling them that we were scientists from Texas researching barn owls. But to that adventurous woman running the pool table the redhead wearing tight cut-off jeans, the kind of woman you know has a green iguana tattooed on her hip. To her, we'd tell the truth. Alaska. Bruce said she could tag along, but he was sure she'd get homesick thousands of miles before the crab boat. Imagine the scene. Some dusty Wyoming ghost town, and this woman sobbing and hugging our necks, angry that she's such a crybaby. She would climb the steps and we'd watch her sad, pretty face in the window as the bus lurched off. And when she was gone, Bruce would sigh with relief. And after a few drinks, we'd get in the truck and go north. I'd miss her terribly. If we saw the right brand of dog, it was a mutt we wanted, the ugliest in the lower 48, we'd stop and bribe him with fast food. 
He could sit between us on the seat and lick our hands, and if he farted, we could look at each other and yell, "'Was that you?' and crank the windows down furiously. And, of course, we'd pick up chicks hitchhiking. When we got one, she could sit between us and hold the dog. We'd name him Handsome and croon to him. We'd go days out of our way to get her home, but we wouldn't be crass and say, "'Gas or grass, all our rides would be free.'" because manners were important, we thought. So, eating in truck stops, we'd put our napkins in our laps and remove our caps and say, yes, ma'am, to the flirting women at nearby tables, even the Yankees, who wouldn't be used to such gentlemen. We would smile and wink and gather our doggy bags and leave 50% tips. Our waitresses would long to follow us, and the pretty gas station checkout girls would lean over their cash registers to read our names, off the backs of our belts, not only because of our unusual looks and ugly dog, but our cultured southern manners. And sportsmen to the end, we'd skid off the road when we saw a private golf course. We'd step out of the trees in our loud pants and vault the fence and drive our used balls into the clouds, needing binoculars to watch the hole-in-ones 300 yards away. The serious golfers in their berets would frown at each other as we played through, carrying only one driver each, and when the stern club attendant came, we'd disappear into the woods like satyrs and reappear magically at the clubhouse bar. Or we'd stop if we found a good secluded pond, rig our rods with snagless sallies and pork rinds, cast into the hard-to-reach, around cypress knees, into grasses, keeping our lines flexible as the large-mouthed bass tore through the murk with the rind whipping against its gills. We'd set the hooks like pros and play the fish perfectly, then grill the shining wet lunkers over a campfire that night and sip the moonshine we'd stolen from bootleggers in Virginia. Handsome would prowl the pond and court his first she-wolf, the two of them baying softly, and in the firelight, Bruce would uncase his mandolin, and I'd warm up my harmonica, and we'd play tender ballads, love songs, so sweet the woods would grow still and sad around us, and just before we'd begin to lament all the people and places we'd left behind, things we'd never see again, we would stop playing, as if on cue, and look at each other, suddenly happy, remembering Alaska, waiting for us. Alaska was first published in the 1999 collection Poachers and is used here by permission of the author. Jennifer Horn has the MFA in poetry from the University of Alabama and was Poet Laureate of Alabama from 2017 to 2021. In addition to three volumes of poetry, several edited volumes of essays, and a forthcoming biography of Alabamian Sarah Mayfield. Horn is the author of a volume of short stories, Tell the World You're a Wildflower. This story, The Other Shoe, first appeared in the 2013 collection, The Shoe Burnin', Stories of Southern Soul, edited by Joe Formicella. My dog Lucy started bringing home shoes just after we moved to a place outside of town, 
beyond the university perimeter zone. At first, I'd save them, hoping their partners would show up. But when they didn't, I would throw them away, although it seemed a shame. Another place we'd lived, Lucy had brought me a pair of size-seven cowboy boots, the left and then the right, a day apart. At first, I worried maybe they'd come off a corpse or something, but they were clean and nearly new, so I decided they'd fallen off a truck somewhere, and I gave them to my sister for her birthday, because she wears size-seven shoes— and has learned not to ask too many questions about the provenance of her gifts from me. My all-purpose answer, which is also mostly true, is the thrift store, or, for my more upscale friends, a great little consignment shop. I was out walking Lucy one day. She runs free, so the walk is mostly for me and for companionship, when an old brown Ford pickup slowed to speak. I wasn't afraid. Beyond the UPZ, people do that. At the very least, they wave, nod, or tip-raise a finger up from the steering wheel. This truck was driven by a red-headed, bearded, big old guy in a t-shirt of indeterminate color. That your dog? Affirmative. She's been over at my place. I hope she hasn't caused any trouble. Nah, she's fine. Pause. You new out here? Affirmative again. I told him we lived down past the creek, a friendly response, but not too specific, just in case he did turn out to be an axe murderer. If he wasn't, he'd respect my being careful until I knew him better. You at the university? Guilty as charged. You a professor? No, just a librarian. Oh, I like books. Civil War, mostly. Some sci-fi. He said this defiantly, as though I would correct his choices. I told him my husband read sci-fi, too. It was an easy way to sneak in the having-a-husband part. I said I'd better get Lucy on home, and he said, She ever show up with a shoe? Ah. I'm so sorry, I said. I had no idea where they were coming from. He smiled, which was somewhat like seeing a bear brushing its teeth. Charming, but unexpected. It don't matter. I ain't got but one foot, so she can have all the left-footed shoes she wants. I just throw them in a pile in the yard. He motioned for me to look inside the truck and inspect his left footlessness, but I demurred. Didn't you notice they was all left-footed shoes? I had not. When I got home, I told Bill the whole thing. Devoted as he has become to remaining slightly drunk from noon until midnight, he jokes that if he ever started going to meetings, he wouldn't need AA, just A, since he only drinks half the day. It took him a minute to grasp the various linkages of the story, but when he did, he hooted. That old redneck is just pulling your leg, so to speak. I defended the one-footedness of the pickup truck guy, but Bill was adamant. After supper, I secretly turned down the air conditioner beyond where he likes it, and went out on the porch to listen to the cicadas. Lucy followed. Loyal dog. Time passed. Leaves fell. The occasional left-footed shoe turned up in the yard. Lucy chewed them until the novelty wore off. Then I put them in the trash. Truck guy and I would wave sometimes when I was out walking. One full moon night, I was wakeful until midnight, but then fell into a deep and dreaming sleep. 
so strong in its reality, I thought I was still awake. I walked out into my backyard, which was also my childhood backyard, and there was my dead mother sitting in a lawn chair. Her hair was long and flowing, the way it was at night after she'd let it down and brushed it out, and she was wearing a ruby-colored, full-length zip-up robe. She looked like royalty. I was so happy to see her, and she rose and hugged me. She was smiling as though she'd just discovered a gold ring in a flower bed, and she was holding a shoe. "'Do you know what this is?' she asked. "'It's the other shoe. All my life I've been waiting for the other shoe to drop, and now it has, and there's nothing to be afraid of anymore. Isn't it wonderful?' I felt my heart glow in my chest like a picture I'd once seen of the Blessed Virgin Mary, and we both stood there laughing and looking into each other's eyes. Just before Thanksgiving, on my way home from work, late because we'd had an event at the library I had to do the A.V. for, I stopped to get milk in the little country store in the corner before you go down the road that leads to our road. Bill has ulcers, and at least will always drink milk, even if he is otherwise not attentive to his health. I rarely go there. The prices are higher and the selection minimal. Some of the cans are now in the vintage category. But I did not want to go to the regular store at that hour just for milk. Something about a grocery store at dusk makes me weepy. The door opened with its cheerful ding, and as I headed down the aisle, saltine crackers on one side of me and potted meats on the other, I saw in front of me my red-headed Ford friend, both feet planted firmly on the poured concrete floor. He glanced up from the restaurant-sized can of pork and beans he was holding like it was a football, looked back down at the can, then back at me. "'Hey, it's the dog, lady. I mean, yeah, it's okay,' I said. "'I know what you meant. How you doing? Can't complain. Getting dark earlier, isn't it?' Yep, we walk mostly early mornings these days. Hmm. Lucy brought home another shoe yesterday, I said. His face changed. He looked sad beyond belief. Oh, he looked down at his feet, very obviously a pair. I am so sorry. I really am. I didn't mean to tell you no lie. I had to know. Well, where do the shoes come from? He smiled with the wiliness of a country boy, sensing himself already semi-forgiven. Well, I work for my cousin sometimes, doing construction. Deconstruction, really, but not like that Derrida. <laughs> Nothing philosophical, just simple deconstruction. I help take the buildings down. I waited. I was not going to be distracted by a tossed-off allusion to Derrida. And you'd be surprised how many old leather shoes you find at these places sometimes in a closet, sometimes under the porch. I throw them in the truck, take them home, and compost them. But why, I asked, would he only find left shoes? He looked sad again. Well, they're both. I just thought you probably wouldn't have noticed. Then after I told you that tale, I had to start taking out the right-footed ones. Tired, a little irritable from work, I felt exasperated with myself for having fallen for his joke, angry at Bill for his cynicism in being right. I sighed and turned to go. Hey, I'm sorry I told you a story. You just looked like someone who would like there to be a good story, 
about all them shoes. What could I say? He was right. I would rather have a made-up good story than the actual boring truth, and that is why I still thought Bill was a misunderstood genius artist, and that someday all Republicans would see the light. The checkout girl seemed to be containing a smile as she rang up my milk. I went out into the cooling dark and headed home. I had kept the last shoe that showed up, a brown leather boot, because it had writing on it in black ink, like a rune. I thought it might help me figure something out. I don't know what. It was just that it was like a clue. The boot was still sitting on top of the doghouse where I had put it out of Lucy's reach when I got home. Looking at it more closely now, I could see that the letters and hearts and stars had probably been drawn by some lovesick teenage girl, not a mysterious one-footed redneck. All the same, I tucked the boot under my arm and took it out to the porch with me after I'd put Bill's milk in the fridge. Lucy joined me, sniffed briefly at the boot, then tucked her nose under my thigh and nuzzled me as I studied the markings. I was determined to make some sense of it after all, even if it was not the story I'd thought it was going to be. The Other Shoe was first published in the collection The Shoe Burnin' and is used here by permission of the author. We hope you don't keep Alabama Aloud all to yourself. Subscribe to our podcast and share it with a friend. Better yet, write us a review in the iTunes store. It helps other people find the podcast. Also, give us a shout out on social media. Alabama Aloud is a production of Troy Public Radio and produced by Austin Toy and Kyle Gassett. Special thanks to Matt Clower, Buddy Johnson, and Michelle Mowry. So, until next time, when you'll hear more of Alabama Read Aloud, I'm Don Noble. Thanks for listening. <laughs>